Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Chickens who want to learn Yiddish, a dog involved in politics and social movements during the Depression era. These are just two of the stories in Honey on the Page, a collection of Yiddish children's literature edited and translated by Emory University professor Miriam Udell. Later this hour, she'll tell us about collecting these stories from a wide range of countries and cultures. First, on November 22nd, Spivey Hall will feature an online event with the superb British pianist Stephen Huff. Spivey will stream Mr. Huff's July recital from the Casals Festival in Puerto Rico, followed by a conversation with the pianist and Spivey Hall Executive Director Sam Dixon. Conversation with Stephen Huff can be as enthralling as listening to him play, which is why it is my delight to welcome back Stephen Huff. Thank you for joining us. My great pleasure. What a, uh, it's so nice to be chatting again, Lois. Now, the date of this Spivey event, November 22nd, is your birthday. It is, yes. Yes, and nothing about you is ordinary, Stephen, but it is remarkable that you were born on St. Cecilia's Day, Cecilia, the patron saint of music, and you share the birth date with the great English composer Benjamin Britten. Do you find this mystical? Not really, Lois, actually. <laughs> But it's nice, you know, I, I think there are worse saints, although her connection to music seems to be very small. It's, there's something about her singing when she was tortured. I, she was an early Roman martyr, I believe. So, no, I, it's, it's just one of those. It's nice. I'm quite happy to be a Scorpio, which it just makes me. I'm right on the edge. Um, <laughs> and I've always thought Scorpios sounded kind of exciting. So uh, I, I'm happy to be amongst them. Fantastic. Well, the Casals Festival in Puerto Rico was founded by the great Spanish Catalan 
cellist Pablo Casals, I remember reading that he began each day playing a prelude and fugue by Bach. He began the day at the piano. And Casal said this was his benediction on the day. You begin this recital with music of Bach. Please tell us about this setting of a movement from Bach's second violin partita. Well, it's by um, Busoni, the, the great Italian pianist and composer who died, I believe, in 1924. He was much celebrated at the time, a great intellectual and um, a very sort of experimental composer, actually, but probably best known for as a concert pianist. And this is a great reimagining, of course, of what was originally for solo violin, the Chacon. Of course, originally it's, it's a monumental piece in, it, in its scope, but Buzoni takes all those implications and makes them real in this piece, which is, is more like an organ work, really. So it's very much a 19th century person's reimagining of Bach in the style of the time. It was written in the last decade of the 19th century. And I, I love it. I think it's the most wonderful opening to a concert. It's deeply serious, um, and you, you feel this wonderful journey from the beginning to the end. So I, I've used it quite a lot as an opening for a concert. And in fact, in some ways, I think it, it's the most important piece in my career because I played it in the semifinals of the Naumburg competition back in 1983. And I believe that it was that performance that um, really won me the competition. So this, without that, I probably wouldn't, certainly wouldn't have had the, the career in America that I've had and maybe wouldn't be playing in public at all, who knows? So I'm grateful to this piece and I, I love it still to this day. Mm. Works by two Romantic era composers, Robert Schumann and Franz Liszt, make up the remainder of the program. In fact, there's symmetry in your choices as the first of the works by Schumann was dedicated to Liszt. Why is Schumann's fantasy in C considered among his greatest works for solo piano? I think it's, it combines forms from the past. The first movement is in a sonata form, more or less. It's a little bit changed. But it's also always developing those forms in, into new areas. You, you, you hear this piece and you, you feel two things, I think. You feel that it's a fantasy, that it's very free, that it's Schumann as if it were improvising on the spot with these incredible outbursts of passion and also great intimacy and contemplation. But then you also realize at the end that you've been on a journey which has tremendous structure. And for me, this is really what makes music great. There's a lot of, of good music and wonderful music around, but when, when you get to the point of a work that you think is truly a classic, a masterpiece, I think it has to do with this combination of the head and the heart. And to me, the Schumann fantasy is one of the great examples of that, particularly the first movement, I think, of that particular point of great feeling of expansiveness and yet tremendous 
rigorous intellectual control over the material. And of course, it, it also the second movement is this wonderful march. We're, we're told, I don't actually think this is true, but the, the legend goes that Liszt wouldn't play this piece in public because he was so afraid of the end of this second movement. It's a very notoriously difficult passage to play for the pianist. And then we have the last movement, this wonderful nocturne. It's, it, it's a piece of great romantic intimacy and, and beauty. So, you know, I, I think that's one of the reasons it's still considered one of Schumann's greatest works. Yes. Franz Liszt was a larger-than-life character. That seems like understatement. Aside from his astonishing virtuosity as a pianist, you've chosen two pieces of Franz Liszt for this program that reveal the sacred and profane aspects of his musings, if you will. How would you describe the selection from Liszt's poetic and religious harmonies compared to the devilishly fun Mephisto Waltz? Well, these are two of, of Liszt's great piano works. Liszt was, uh, he goes before us in everything we do as pianists. He developed the technique of playing the piano. He developed the pianos themselves. You know, he was pushing the piano makers to make instruments which would play his music better. And also in so many other ways with composer, composers, he was an influence. He was um, Wagner. He took Wagner's harmonies and stretched those more. He was a, a huge influence on the whole Impressionist school of Debussy and Ravel. And then right into the 20th century with Bartok and Kodai and, and, and those other Hungarian composers uh, with the kind of primitivism that, that he also e explored. These two works, the Funerai is the first of the two. It's a very, very powerful emotional journey. It starts with great clanging bells as if summoning us to this funeral. And then we have this lament, which is the funeral march. You can see the men uh, carrying the coffin to the church. And then you have the, the, the more romantic section, which is full of tears. He even writes piangendo weepingly.
And then you have the middle section, which is heroic. Perhaps this person who's died was a, um, a soldier or something like that. You feel that there's a kind of heroism. You hear the, the, the clattering of the horse's hooves. And, and it builds up to a ferocious climax with octaves and the whole piano shaking with, um, with vibrations. And then we get these two themes uh, again, but the, the, the lament theme now is in, in a full fortissimo. And it ends um, very much without any real light, um, just with a little staccato chords. Very, very powerful piece. And as you say, the, the Mephisto Waltz, devilish, also very serious piece, a great influence on Scriabin, actually. You'll hear in the middle section, many of Scriabin's harmonies there. But a great showpiece. Liszt, you know, had an unrivaled technique at the piano, and he certainly liked to make sure that he brought that out in his compositions. And so you, you get that in this piece. But it's not just display. It's certainly not like many of the etudes or some of the Hungarian rhapsodies. This is a, a very serious piece of music, very beautifully constructed. And it's always a lot of fun to play. Audiences always seem to, to enjoy this one. And it takes us back to that quintessential romantic era character of Franz Liszt. You know, the great lover who became a priest for a little while and uh, this generous musician who was also capable of being quite vain and self-aware of his celebrity enjoying it. I think it would be fantastic if you wrote a biography of Franz Liszt, Stephen. <laughs> well, there have been some wonderful ones written, of course, um, and it's, uh, biographies are a lot of work, but you know, Liszt is some, someone that I'm, I'm very close to. I think he was, uh, he was vain in, in a sense, but there was a very small part of a very big personality. You know, he stopped playing in public in his mid-30s, uh, at least for money, and he donated all his uh, earnings. He taught for free. And there's some lovely anecdotes. One I, I, I found out about only very recently. This woman was playing a concert somewhere and she'd advertised herself as a pupil of Liszt. And it was completely untrue. But all the posters everywhere said pupil of Liszt, pupil of Liszt. And so people were coming to hear her. And she didn't realize that Liszt happened to arrive in that city the night before her concert. She was absolutely horrified when she found this out because... 
unlike today when on the internet everyone can find out everything there unless you were in that town you wouldn't have seen the posters so she found out where Liszt was staying at his hotel and she went there terribly contrite and threw herself at his feet and said please master forgive me I I only told this lie because I, 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 I'm so fond of you and you're playing and I, I, you know, I feel terrible and she was in tears and, and he, you know, he said, well, you know, don't, don't worry so much, just tell me what, what are you going to play tomorrow? And so she started telling the, him about the pieces she was going to play and he had a piano in his hotel room and he said, well, do you want to play me a little something of this program? Play me one of the pieces. So she sat down and she played for about five minutes and he said, okay, well, now you can say you're a pupil of Liszt, which I think is a, is a typical of his generosity and sense of humor. You know, many people would have been outraged and be suing her and so on. He just <laughs> made, he made her falsehood into a truth. And I think there's something very beautiful about that. There's another occasion I, I read about also quite recently. He was playing a concert, very small audience. They hadn't done any ad advertising about it. And there was just, I don't know, 20 people in the audience. And he said, well, look, this is crazy. Why don't you all come back to my hotel? I'll order champagne and food and I'll play the concert for you there on my piano in the hotel. So again, something you can't imagine a lot of artists to, even today doing. And I, they're two things which emphasize really the affection, I think, with, with which so many people held list. Hmm. Okay, forget the biography. You're right that there's much <laughs> too much scholarly work that would need to be done there. I think you should write a screenplay or a miniseries on Liszt. Well, there you go. Wouldn't that be interesting? There's certainly enough in Liszt's life to make a really interesting film. And of course, there have been films, but they've usually been rather sensationalist and, and have, have usually focused on this earlier part of his life when he was the virtuoso touring around. He went from Seville to St. Petersburg. You know, he had a huge range of, of, of travel and in that time of course this is before trains even this was you know very very difficult to to get around uh, Europe then but we forget that you know over half his life was lived in a much more serious way as, as a teacher and as helping young people helping colleagues Wagner treated him really terribly badly and yet he kept promoting Wagner's music and he was unfailingly generous indeed Okay, I will look forward to watching the miniseries, or maybe it could be a 13-part series. You can play list. I mean, well, I think I, we need somebody who's a real actor. He's too big a personality. You need to have him. <laughs> but there are plenty who do a wonderful job. Well, you could, you could play the piano parts. It could be like <laughs> the red violin where you didn't... Right. Josh Bell played... The violin, actually, I believe. He did, yes, indeed. That's a wonderful film. Earlier, we spoke about Casal's need to play Bach as a benediction on the day. Do you think there is something prayer-like in the beauty of Tremorai, the dreamy piece by Schumann that ends this program? Well, the question was, what do you play after Mephisto Waltz? You certainly can't play anything more virtuosic or more big, you know, between those two list pieces. And I thought it would be nice to go back to Schumann. And Schumann had this wonderful way of um, evoking innocence. You know, he loved children. 
And he wrote, of course, the album for the young, which were pieces for children to play. But he also wrote this wonderful set called Kinderzähnen, of which the Träumerei is one. And this is an adult looking back at childhood or watching children play and thinking about the wonderful innocence and, and tenderness that children have, um, the affection that they have. And, and indeed dreaming, this is somebody perhaps half asleep, you know, children's dreams, well, the whole cycle really involves those. And I think there's something very, very touching about that. So yeah, in, in that respect, I think that's true. I... No, this piece is often played alone, as it is on this program. Yes. You said something to me many years ago, which was most meaningful. And I thought of it again when I saw that you're ending this program with this beautiful short piece. You said, is a poem any less profound than a novel and I always think about that when I'm struck by the beauty of a piece such as Trimarai because you not only added to my appreciation of short works but you added to my appreciation of poetry when you said that Oh, that's lovely, Lois. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for remembering that. I, I, I do think it's, it's very true. And I think also in a piece of music is not over when it's over. I think we carry it with us. And, and that can be the same with a short piece or a long piece. We, we take away the vibrations, the melodies, the, the mood that it's evoked in us, and we live with it. And that's what a, a concert should do. We, we don't want it to finish when we leave the, the, the auditorium or when we turn off the the recording. It should remain there. It should vibrate still in our ears. Well, there is no danger of losing that experience listening to you play. Stephen Huff, as always, it is a joy to talk with you, and I look forward to our next conversation. Indeed, that will be a great pleasure, always, Lois, and I hope also to see you in, in for real these crazy times when we're just talking on screens and down oh, microphones. I know. We, uh, we all long to see each other properly again, and I'm sure it will, it will be soon. I, I'm sure by, by the spring, things will be a little bit more normal. Pianist Stephen Huff will perform this Sunday at 3 p.m. in a virtual event from Spivey Hall. There will be a pre-concert talk with the artist and Sam Dixon, the executive and artistic director of Spivey Hall. 
More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. Honey on the Page is a treasury of Yiddish children's literature. The book was edited and translated by Emory University Professor Miriam Udell. She is with us now via Zoom. Miriam Udell, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. I am an almost daily listener, and it is a thrill to be with you, Lois. Thank you. Well, your book contains children's literature, though the stories and poems you've selected seem ideal for reading together as a family and equally enjoyable for adults to read alone. I was hoping you would tell us about your ongoing focus group for this volume. <laughs> well, the, the focus group consists of my three sons, who are now 16, um, just on the cusp of turning 13 and four and a half. And they have been the, the testers for a lot of these stories. If, if a story or a poem could hold their interest or draw them in, then I knew I had something that would speak to other children and other families as well. Sweet. I love how you honor your first Hebrew school teacher with the title of the book. How did she win over her students? Absolutely. So the, the title of the book refers to a long-standing tradition in Jewish education, um, particularly the, the Jewish education of little boys who attended very informal schools known as cheders or chadorim, that would be the plural, um, which literally just means a room. And on the first day of class in, the, in this cheder system, the instructor would smear honey on the page of whatever primer the students were going to be using to learn the Hebrew, which is the same as the Yiddish alphabet or olive bays. And when I started my own Jewish education in a much more co-educational, suburban, modern setting, our teacher wanted to do something similar, um, but she didn't want the mess of dealing with a lot of honey in a, in a school classroom. So she, she had little chocolates and she would come around to each desk and we would open our primers and she would spill out this little cascade of chocolates and we would eat those and she explained that that was going to make our learning sweet. And indeed it did. Oh, I love it. She had you a chocolate. The scope of topics in this collection is vast. The book contains 47 stories and poems. Would you talk about how you arranged the categories? Sure. So this is the first really comprehensive volume of its kind that tries to make Yiddish children's literature in some sort of representation of its totality available for the English language reader. And the first question I faced was, how am I going to organize all of this? And one possibility would have been to do so chronologically 
or to do so geographically. But I felt like both of those organizational schemes would kind of market as a book for specialists who are interested mostly in the history. And I really wanted to create something that would be a companion and a resource for families and for educators, as well as for scholars of Jewish literary history. And so I decided that I would organize it thematically. And I, I wanted to find a thematic mode of organization that would be authentic and feel true to the history of this literature, but that would also be um, beckoning and inviting for contemporary readers. And what I hit upon was a scheme that I saw in a lot of anthologies from 100 years ago, which is to move from the most distinctively and singularly Jewish content toward more universal content. And so that's why I started with Jewish holidays, history and heroes, and moved on to the kinds of folk tales, wonder tales, tales of fools, allegories and fables that we might find in any culture and its children's literature. And then on to the more universal experiences of going to school, which at least until a few months ago was a major theme in the lives of most children, and the things that we learn outside of school in life's classroom. And finally, that most universal experience of all belonging to a family, but of course with a Yiddish cultural twist. Hmm. When people think of Yiddish literature, theater, or music, we associate the culture with Eastern Europe. Let's talk about the writers you include in Honey on the Page and how you extend the map with contributors in this book. Sure. So this is a literature that begins in Eastern Europe. I think we have to go back and say a word about what Yiddish is. It is a fusion language um, whose primary components are German and Hebrew, but that also comes to contain a lot of Slavic elements, a stratum of romance elements that's very small but very old within Yiddish, and then comes to be influenced by wherever Yiddish speakers migrated. So today that means that there are um, English, American English and British English elements in Yiddish, that there's Hebrew in Yiddish. And so it's really a kind of a portable linguistic homeland that moves with the Jews through the enormous migrations of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And we see that reflected in the authorship of these tales. We also see it reflected in the settings of these tales, um, many of which, of course, are in either a very realistic or a kind of enchanted, fantastical Eastern Europe, but that also come to include Central European cities, New York City, um, Trinidad, Havana, Buenos Aires, Tel Aviv, even Casablanca, Morocco is included. So it's really a, a book that takes us all over the world in terms of both the sites of publication and the settings of these stories and poems. And this is a wonderful feature of the book. I'm 
glad you mentioned Trinidad because I wanted to ask you about this unusual setting for a Jewish story. Zina Rabinowitz is a great example of an author taking us somewhere beyond Europe or New York for that matter. Would you tell us about Senor Ferrara's first Yom Kippur? I am so excited that you asked me about this one, Lois, because I really feel that Sina Rabinovitz is one of the gems that I've unearthed in the course of this project. Her name is not widely known, but I think that it deserves to be. She published a lot in the 1950s, which means after the Holocaust, when the project of writing Yiddish children's literature really shifted from educating children in a general sense in Yiddish and to be part of a Yiddish speaking nation and citizenry toward cultural consolidation and preservation. So her work was mostly published in Latin America, particularly in Buenos Aires, and she creates stories set in the post-war era that really try to kind of put a very fractured, very broken Yiddish-speaking and Jewish world back together again. And part of the way that she does this is by very honestly representing loss, cultural loss, assimilation, violence, and showing that there is some kind of a life for the Jewish people beyond that. So Senor Ferrara is a, um, is a character who is descended from Spanish Jews who were fleeing the Inquisition in 1492. And his family came to Trinidad and was able to find, to find freedom and survival there. And they eventually assimilated with the local population and over the course of generations and centuries became Catholic. But Senor Ferrara in his old age finds himself drawn to a small uh, population, a small synagogue of Jews who established themselves in Trinidad when they are fleeing Hitler in the 40s. They, they buy a house and they turn it into a little synagogue and Senor Ferrara is just kind of mystically drawn to that place. He first comes um, to, to kind of hang out and listen during the Kol Nidre service, which is on the, the eve of Yom Kippur, and it's a kind of liturgical climax of the Jewish year of communal prayer. And he comes back again Friday night after Friday night to witness the Sabbath prayers. And when it's time um, for him to make his last will and testament, unbeknownst to everyone, he, he decides that he can't really be buried in the Catholic cemetery. He's no longer a believer. He is at the same time not really able to be buried in the Jewish cemetery. He has no public standing as a member of the Jewish community. And so he leaves as his last will and testament the desire to be thrown into the sea next to the cliffs in, in Port of Spain, Trinidad. And that's where he finds his eternal resting place as a person who's kind of caught between these two religious communities and these two identities. 
So it's, it's pretty serious material, um, but it's written in a way that's actually kind of hopeful and redemptive. Emory University professor Miriam Udell. We'll hear more about her recent book, Honey on the Page, after a short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Let's return to my conversation with Emory University Professor Miriam Udell about Honey on the Page, a treasury of Yiddish children's stories she collected and translated to English. There has been a great deal written about how children use stories and folk tales to understand difficult topics. Is making sense of persecution a recurring theme of these stories and poems? Absolutely. And I think that these authors were really progressive or ahead of their time in understanding that it's often best to speak very directly to children about difficult topics, about violence, about persecution and to show them what is in their power to control, even in circumstances that are largely out of the control, even of the best meaning and most protective adults. And sometimes we see the um, violence and struggles of one generation being used to stand in for the suffering of a different generation. In 1941, Isaac Metzger publishes a life of the medieval Spanish, um, Spanish Jewish communal leader and scholar, Bible commentator, Don Yitzchak Abravanel. And Yitzchak Abravanel leads the Iberian Jewish community through the Inquisition and the expulsion from Spain. And by publishing the story of his life and really telling it as a, a noble tale of leadership in the, the face of catastrophe, Metzger is offering his readers in 1941 some kind of a light and a beacon of hope through the darkest days of the Holocaust. Um, we, we see it figured there in a pretty realistic way. We also see those those fears and those sufferings make their way into even the world of fairy tale. Um, Shloyma Bastomsky creates a, a fairy tale um, with all kinds of magical doings that has a, a blood libel, a false accusation against the Jewish community driving its plot. 
and it's a, a kind of, I would say, latter day, but it's really out of time. It's not set in any particular time period. So it's an out of time story about a community that manages to, to um, band together and rebuff a false accusation. In what you just said, it also brings to mind how difficult, how painful it is for African-Americans to tell stories of heritage, of the civil rights movement, of what's going on now, and approaching these painful topics in a way that children can understand and process. And with the chickens who wanted to learn Yiddish, though it is lighthearted, I thought about our revered late Congressman John Lewis and how as a six-year-old boy, John Lewis liked to preach to the chickens on his family farm. That's, that was his first experience as a pastor. Now, what do these New Jersey chickens ha have in mind for Pincus, the young boy in this story? So I also read that anecdote um, at the time that Congressman Lewis um, of of blessed memory departed. And I thought, oh my goodness, Pinchas and Sarah, the children who live on a, on a Yiddish chicken farm in Toms River, New Jersey, um, it, it certainly made me think of them. So a lot of these stories speak on one level to children and on a whole other level to adults. And this is one that I think describes to adults what it means to um, make a commitment to preserving your culture. If you have any sort of a minority culture in America, whether it's an ethnicity or a nationality, a language, a minority language that you speak at home, um, there are such strong pressures to assimilate. And those are often accelerated by economic pressure. So there, were some uh, pockets of Jewish agricultural activity in southern New Jersey, um, Jewish chicken farming in particular. And it's, it's still something of a thing. If you go to a, a kosher grocery store, you can still find Vineland, New Jersey chicken. And the community in Tom's River, as described in this story, decides that even though they're living in relative isolation from the robust Yiddish cultural center in New York City, they're going to create a Yiddish after school so that their children will learn to speak a good, fine Yiddish with the parents and the grandparents. And naturally, in the course of that, um, the children are gone every day after school, and the chickens who are accustomed to playing with the, those children get restive and they miss the kids and they want to find out where are they going every day. And so the, the chickens mount their own investigation and they determine that the children are going to Yiddish school. And the chickens end up saying, well, are we not Yiddish chickens? We belong to a Jewish farmer. We want to learn Yiddish. It's our right too. And one of the chickens sneaks along 
to Yiddish school. And of course, the occasion for telling this whole story is that that, that rooster has um, cockadoodled dude in the middle of class, and the little boy who snuck him into school has to explain himself. Um, and, and I have to say that um, this is not actually the closest that Yiddish children's literature comes to thinking about the African-American experience, which, which is parallel in so many ways. Um, I would actually love to talk about another animal entirely, and that is Lobzik, the puppy dog, who is very concerned about or, or at least his author, Javier Paver, is very concerned about racial equality as part of a comprehensive vision for, for social justice. So would it be okay if I took us over to, to Brooklyn toward Lobzik? Let me tell you, Miriam, that little gasp was because my next question is about Lobzik. As a dog lover, I was drawn to Lobzik the stories of a clever pup. How does this author bring in the politics and social movements of the time? Sure. So Javier Pavel is the pen name of an author named Gershon Einbinder, who was a very committed leftist. And he wrote this book for distribution through the school system of the International Workers' Order, which was a labor movement that was aligned with unapologetic communism. And it's published in 1935 as a, as a way to really educate school children in this, as I said, comprehensive vision for social justice that includes economic justice, racial equality, and to a lesser degree, a kind of proto-feminism, or at least attention to the idea that girls should be educated and have opportunities in parallel with their brothers. And so Lobzik, I call him leftist lassie because he is <laughs> the uh, focal point of every chapter and he's always the hero of the day and he always behaves within the range of what would be realistically possible for a dog to do. So he barks and he wags his tail and he licks people and he is very, very intelligent um, and he communicates, but he doesn't talk. We never sort of cross that line where we're good social realists who, who hew to the idea that children's literature should be realistic. And so in the first chapter that I include, Lobzik gets adopted from the subway where he's been abandoned during the depression because the, the family that had him in their charge could no longer feed him. And he gets adopted by Betel the operator, and that's Betel the sewing machine operator, and his wife Molly, and their two children, Mulik the brother and Rivke the sister. And they are a kind of ideal sitcom family before sitcoms. It's really the era of radio plays. And every chapter 
has a self-contained plot with a rising action and a conflict and a climax where Lobzik somehow saves the day and then falling action and a, a denouement and it's all wrapped up neatly with a bow. And there are 12 of these stories. I was able to include two in Honey on the Page. I'm translating the rest of them now. I believe that they really want to be a graphic novel. So if there are any illustrators out there listening or anyone who's publishing children's literature and is looking for a great graphic novel with socially conscientious themes, please please let me know. But if it's, if it's all right, I wanna just tell you about a chapter that I did not include in Honey on the Page that has most explicitly to do with race and racial justice. Because Lobzik is a dog, he can kind of have it both ways. He can be preternaturally intelligent and kind, but he can also, on the other hand, be just a dog who's literally inhuman. And at one point, Mulek has his two best friends over, Jaime and Noah, or Noyach in the Yiddish. And Noyach happens to be an African-American boy who is a close friend of Mulek's from public school. Um, he attends public school in the morning and he and his sister go to Yiddish school in the afternoon. And one day, for no good reason, Labzik bites Noyach for no other reason than he has darker skin than the other kids on the block. And this rocks the children's world. This is the greatest possible offense. And imitating the grown-ups, they decide that they not only need to punish Lobzik right away, but they need to convene a tribunal of all of the children and to put Lobzik on trial. And Lobzik's sentence in this tribunal is a full week of ostracism during which nobody cuddles him, nobody pets him, nobody even talks to him because he has to be taught not to be a weiser chauvinist, which is the Yiddish term, literally means a white chauvinist, and it's the Yiddish term at that time for racism. And so by the end of the story, Lobzik learns that he has done a terrible thing and it must never be repeated. And he says at the end of the story, we, we have an omniscient narrator who's able to grant us access to Lobzik's thoughts. And he says at the end of the story that he would never again bite a black child, even for all of the, an entire houseful of lem chops. And so we know that Lobzik has learned his lesson and the children reading the story in 1935 have also hopefully learned their lesson. Mm. With their universal themes, the stories and poetry in Honey on the Page are not meant exclusively for Jewish children. Miriam, ultimately, why is it important to restore this body of work? I'm hoping that these stories um, will give a new kind of access and really, really open up that window for um, all kinds of Americans to learn about this part of the American heritage. And I also think that it's an important part of telling 
the modern Jewish story and the the large, really kind of multicolored and and chaotic story of the Jewish experience in the modern world, which did include so much migration and so many forms of acculturation, but also the preservation of this, this Yiddish heritage. Emory University professor Miriam Udell edited and translated all of the Yiddish stories in the recent book, Honey on the Page. For more information, check out our website at wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., our guest will be Emily Blunt. The popular English-born actor is a passionate spokesperson for the American Institute for Stuttering. She recently visited with Atlanta parents and children from the Institute to share her personal story as one who still struggles with stuttering. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter. Help me reach that next round number, if you will. I'm at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Wishing you a safe and good weekend. And thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.